0: Hey, well, good morning, North Star. If I haven't met you before, my name's Cole, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here, and it truly is an honor for me anytime I get to open up God's word as we just kind of work through what God's saying. So um, let's get going. Uh, The National Institute of Health, NIH, is housed in Bethesda, Maryland, and they, they host around 200 clinical trials a year um, where essentially you have rare diseases um, or popular diseases with a new drug or a new therapy in order to, to help um, Americans find a way to experience a better life, experience health. And for, for my family, the NIH became something very personal very quickly is uh, my dad was diagnosed with a one in a million neurological disease. Um, And so it was around my third grade year, my dad was invited to NIH for one of these clinical trials. And so we knew going in that when, if you know anything about science, the way this works was there was going to be an experimental group and there was going to be a control group. Now the experimental group was going to be given the new drug. Now, this drug had the ingredients, it had the substance, it had the scientific term, the sauce, if you will, um, to actually help this person, to potentially make them better, to get them to return to a normal status of life. But then in order for this, like I said, this experiment to work, there also needed to be a control group. Now, the control group was given essentially a placebo, um, which is basically a sugar pill. But it was a way for them to kind of evaluate and measure, are these people getting better or are they not? Because this placebo doesn't have the ingredients. It doesn't have the substance. It doesn't have the sauce, again, if you will, to actually make a difference physiologically in this person's body. So for us, you know, this became a, a time of, like, great hope. Was, like, is this going to be, like, is dad going to get the drug that's going to help, like, life turn back to normal? Like, are we going to get our, our lives back? Like, it kind of became this, this question Of is he in the experimental group or is he in the control group? So why do I start there this morning? Is that our Christian message is based on hope. And we believe that that our message has the substance, it has the ingredients to actually make a difference in our lives. But we have to ask, does it have the substance or is Christianity just a placebo? As the German philosopher Karl Marx calls, all religion is simply an opiate for the masses to make us feel better, but it doesn't actually have anything to change us, to change reality. It's just a placebo. Is our hope just us hoping for hope itself? I mean, we are, we're, we're hope machines. We, we hope there won't be traffic. We hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. We, we hope we'll get a raise but does that hope have any substance? Does it have any ingredients to actually make a difference? Because I don't have to belabor this point, but we live in a hopeless world. We live in a world with school shootings. We live in a world with cancer. We live in a world of abuse. We live in a world with infertility. We live in a world of injustice. Does Christianity have the substance or is it just a placebo? So if I was to title this morning's message, it would be the ultimate Christian hope. Because I'm convinced, North Star is convinced, that the Christian hope does have the substance. It does have the ingredients to make a difference now and for eternity. So the passage that we're going to be walking through is 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 through 28. Now, uh, these eight verses, I'm not going to lie to you, they're dense but they're beautiful. And so as we walk through this, I wanna point out a few of these ingredients that give us Christian hope. So I've set the standard really high this morning. So if we can, can we just pray um, and ask for God's spirit to speak through God's word to God's people? So let's, let's, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we have hope this morning. And uh, where we just ask that your spirit would speak to us through 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, God, that you would illuminate it to us, God, that it it would change us. So if you would, would you pray and ask that God's spirit would use God's word to speak to you this morning? And if you would, would you pray for me that I would be helpful to you and that I would be clear? Father, may my words fall to the ground and be forgotten, but may your words be remembered and change us. We pray this now through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, Mike has done a wonderful job of walking us through Paul's master class on the resurrection. It's the, it is the best written case for the resurrection in all of writing. And we saw at the beginning in verses 1 through 4 about the gospel, the thing of first importance, that Christ died for our sins and that he rose from the dead and that he revealed himself to all these people. And then last week, Mike did an awesome job of talking about that if, our res- if resurrection isn't real, then our, face is, our faith is futile, that it's pointless. And so Paul is actually going to pivot his argument here in verse 20, where he just finished talking about how the, the, all of the negative consequences around denying the resurrection. And it's here in verse 20, that he's going to pivot and begin to talk about the positive consequences of the resurrection, but also talk about your resurrection and my resurrection, our physical resurrection. You see, in, really, we live between two Easters that we believe that Jesus Christ in 33 AD died on the death on a Roman cross, was put in a buried grave, but he didn't remain dead. He rose from the dead. Easter. And now we experience this spiritual power of the resurrection now. But we believe that Christ will return one day to finish what he completed. And in that second Easter, we will physically be raised from the dead. Our physical bodies will come out of the tombs. We will, we will be resurrected. And it's one of the ingredients of our key hope. And i want to explain it to you here in verse 20. God's word says this. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule, all authority and power, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that is to be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. So starting off in verse 20, we see that, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, this has been raised is a perfect tense verb, which simply means that it's something that happened in the past, but has ongoing results, long ongoing implications. Because Jesus is not the only human in human history who's raised from the dead. I mean, we've got scripture accounts of Lazarus who raised from the dead. But you know what happened to Lazarus? He died again. Then we've got Jairus' daughter who rises from the dead, but then Jairus' daughter, she dies again. Or maybe you know someone or you've read a book of someone who's, who's had a death experience. They code on the table, but then they come back to life, but they've died again. Now, Jesus' resurrection is distinct because he has risen from the dead and he is still alive. That Friends, Jesus is alive and well today. That death was truly overwhelmed. That the grave was truly overwhelmed. So this physical resurrection from the dead is explained in the next few words. It says that he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now this word first fruits, our our first century Jewish audience would for sure knows what this means, even anyone in the first century because it was an agrarian society. It's this idea of we we are planning the harvest and they would take the first sheaf of grain and they would bring it to the temple as their way of saying, God, we are giving you the harvest, that the, this one sheaf, the firstfruits, was the representative, or was the pledge, or was the guarantee, or was the sample of what was to come. That Jesus, in a sense, is saying, hey, I am the first fruits, I am a sample, I am the guarantee, the pledge of the resurrection that is to come. That in the same way that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, we too will be raised from the dead. Now, I know that none of you are, at least I assume none of you are farmers and there's probably no none of us are first century folks. So I want to put this in uh, our terms. Let's think about the iPhone. So Colossians 1.18 uh, describes a very similar term here, but it's the word prototokos, which is where we get the word prototype. And so whenever, um, Whenever, when it obviously it was, when it was Steve Jobs or when it was uh, Tim Cook, like they'll stand up and they're like, Here's iPhone 28. Here is the prototype. It's the first one. And then in six months, everybody has the iPhone 28. That it is the example, it is the pledge of what is to come. So Christ, physically raised from the dead, is our first fruits. It is what is to come. Now you may say, Cole, I thought when we died, we'd go to heaven. We do. So let me explain. It says here specifically that those who are asleep. Now, this is used throughout the Bible to talk about those who have passed away. Um, And and really, even this idea of asleep is very physical um, because you know, 1 Corinthians 5 tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. He dies, he goes to heaven. But we stand, once again, between two resurrections. This is the general resurrection that is to come. So you may be wondering, Cole, why does this matter? Why does a physical resurrection, why is this one of the key ingredients of Christian hope? And it's this, that nothing stands outside of God's redemptive plan. That there is not a speck of dust. There is not an ounce of a cell on your body that God will not restore that there is nothing under God's great cosmos that will not be made new, not your soul, not your body, because you are an embodied soul, by the way. Like you, are, your body matters. That God is not just redeeming spiritual things or unseen things, but God is redeeming all things, physical, material things that matter. And because I, th- I think we've got a pretty good grasp on the fact that when Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died a death that we deserved, that and rose from the dead, that if we trust in him, that he has canceled the penalty of sin because the penalty of sin is death and hell. And when Jesus rose from that grave and we trusted in him, the penalty of sin is done away with, that we have been saved, past tense. But then now as we kind of are in this in-between time, I've been saved, but Jesus has also freed us from the power of sin and death not just the penalty, but the power that I no longer have to sin. I no longer have to be enslaved to my lusts and my desires and my self-centeredness, that I'm currently in the process of being saved, that the power of sin and death gone. But what this passage is talking about and where we're heading today is that there is coming a day in which we will experience the presence of sin and death gone forever. Like just, just for a moment, would you just imagine... I'm getting ahead of myself, but I don't care. Ackworth and Kennesaw with no sin, evil, and death. You wake up tomorrow, and those things don't exist. It's really good news. And so point number one from verse 20, we see that Christ's resurrection guarantees ours that he is the prototokos, he is the prototype, he is the first fruit, that as he rose from the dead and is still living, we too, will our bodies will be risen from the grave and united with our souls forever. And then Paul continues his argument in verse 21 and 22. He says this, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. So Paul kind of provides two parallel tracks for us. He says that through a man came death and then through a man came life and resurrection. That he says, you've got Adam and you've got Christ. That Adam, the first human. And it's through him and through through his sin and his rebellion against God that death comes. But it's through Christ that resurrection comes, that when, that when Adam sinned, it was almost like a virus was injected into the DNA of humanity, that every single one of us have this curse of selfishness and sinfulness inside of us that we can't break. So what we see in this passage is that all who are physically born of Adam will die. That if you are physically born of Adam, we will die. This is all of humanity. No one is exempt from this. But then we also see that all who are spiritually born of Christ, who are spiritually born of Jesus, will be made alive. And so the question becomes today, who are you connected to? Are you connected to Adam or are you connected to Jesus? So let's think about it this way. Um, Right outside my mom's neighborhood, there's a a train track. And uh, CSX runs trains back and forth on that thing all day long. Get stuck behind, you're going to be 15 minutes late, guaranteed. And the thing about this is that all those CSX trains have an engine, and then they have boxcars. And those boxcars are connected to the engine. And so if the engine is heading north, the boxcars are heading north. And if the engine is heading south, but that boxcar is connected to the engine The boxcars are heading south. And in the same way, by nature, we are connected to Adam. And where he goes, we go, which is death. But if we're connected with Christ, and the way that we latch the boxcar of our life onto Christ is through faith, and when we latch our lives onto him, we're connected with him, then we experience resurrection, that we are connected to him. Because the reality is in our sin and in our death, we don't need a second chance. We need a second Adam. So just like full transparency here, like I've had loads of second chances with my sin and I need more and more and more and more and more of them. Because left to my own devices, I will choose selfishness, pride, and lust all day long. I don't need a second chance. I need a second Adam. I need someone to come and be my representative for me to latch my life onto and bring me towards eternity. And so our point for this is that Jesus is the second Adam. He is the one who came and did things the right way. Adam was, the created intended purpose for Adam was to live with God, for God, for the glory of God, to know him, love him and enjoy him forever to be his representative in God's created order. But instead of representing God, Adam chose to rival God, chose to turn inward, choose selfishness instead of choosing godliness. And that curse has drifted down into the generations that come. But Jesus, think about this. Jesus as well was made to know God, love God, live with God, and glorify God forever to represent him perfectly on planet earth as Adam was designed to. And Jesus did it perfectly, that he is the second Adam. And so friends, you do not need a second chance with God today. You need a second Adam to be made right with God today. So once again, which train are you connected to? What's the engine that's pulling you in a direction towards godliness and eternity towards eternity with God? Or are you connected to an engine that's pulling you away from God towards an eternity in hell? There is the trajectory of our lives that Jesus is the second Adam. So Paul continues his argument and it's gonna start getting good here. 23 through 26, he says this, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, there's that word again, after those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom that the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule, all authority and power, for he must reign until he has all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So we see here is that, but in each his own order, this word order is a military term, and it kind of talks about proper sequencing, proper arrangement, kind of like punctuality almost. And so, But Paul's explaining that when the end time comes, like when when Jesus returns, here's the order of how it's gonna work. We've got Christ who has already physically been risen from the dead, and now we're in this in-between time. And then we're waiting for the second Easter, the second resurrection, which is after that, those who are Christ, that is coming. And then verse 24 says, then comes the end. Now, this English word end does does not do us justice. It's the Greek word telos. And this idea of telos is not just the end of a movie, but it's the completion. It's the consummation. It's the coming together as it was originally intended. It's the the target in which we're aiming the arrows of our life. That when comes the end, what happens? It says that Jesus abolishes rule, authority, and power, and that he abolishes death. That in due time, Jesus Christ will abolish evil, sin, and death permanently. That those rule, authority, and power, anything that stands in opposition to God's will and God's way will be abolished. That the very last enemy, that is death, will be Abolish. This word "abolish" is this idea of being made to nothing. It'll be emptied of its power. It'll be sapped of its strength. It'll be as though it never existed. Every Monday night at around six thirty p.m., I'm a part of a grief share class, uh, and you know, it's a, a collection of people who are walking through their grief with the loss of um, spouses, of kids, uh, of just loved ones, of friends. And when I tell you about this class is that they will tell you that death is not our friend. Death is our enemy. That it's not a golden door that we walk through from one existence to another, but it is the thing that separates us. That death in Christian understanding is not extinction, but it's separation. It's separation from the way things were meant to be. That, that a body racked by cancer is not how it was supposed to be. that a a life that's separated from friends and family is not as it's meant to be, that we don't believe they're extinct. We believe they're in heaven. We believe they're in hell. We, We believe that there's this separation, this split. It's unnatural even. And so the hope for that class on Monday evenings and the hope for us is that death will be abolished. And so I would just invite you again to imagine your Monday morning without sin, evil, and death. It's a beautiful picture. And so maybe you've asked, your, asked the question, why has God tolerated evil all these years? Why has God allowed for death, evil, and sin to run rampant in our community, to run rampant in our world? Why, God? And the answer is found in this passage, that Jesus is in the process of bringing to get, capturing his kingdom and then he will abolish it once and for all. That there will be a time in which there will be no enemy to tamper with God's purposes. That it will be eradicated from the earth. But not only is evil evaporated, but we're gonna see in these next few verses that it's made new. Verse 27 through 28, it says this. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection. I know that's really confusing language, basically that God the Father is not subject to Jesus, because that would not make sense. Verse 28, and when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. And this last phrase here, that God may be all in all. So five times in this passage, we've got the word subjected. And then three times, we've got this idea of being put under the feet. Now, the word subject is this idea of bringing order out of chaos or, or rightly ordering things the way that they were intended to be. That they're bringing function out of dysfunction. That when Christ returns, when, when we're physically raised from the dead, that there will be this order out of chaos That in fact, Jesus will make all things new, that he will reverse the curse. That I want you to imagine the worst thing that you've ever done or said. And then I want you to think about the worst thing that's ever been done or said to you. That will be subjected in Christ Jesus and put under his feet it will be made right. I've heard it said that when this happens, that all evil will become untrue. Like like think about the pain that you've walked through. It will, in the new heavens and the new earth, it will become untrue. What a gift. I mean, think about every single thing that will be restored. I know I keep pushing us back to Adam and Eve that, that Adam and Eve are living in the garden in completion as things were meant to be it's the hebrew word shalom and they're in right relationship with god they are living with him and enjoying him for as he should and not only that but then adam and eve great relationship with one another no shame no fighting like they are right in relationship with one another but then not only that like adam and eve are in right relationship with themselves like like no insecurity that need to like promote or project or to to guard my pride like Adam and Eve are good. They're whole, they're complete. Not only that, like, man, they're literally planting stuff in the ground. It's planting up trees. Like work is basically play. All is right. And the beautiful thing is, is that this eternity that we're talking about, all those things will be put into subjection under his feet, will be made right, and we will experience it again. Shalom is breaking in. And so scripture, thankfully, is not silent on what this physical resurrection, what this new heavens and new earth will look like. So in the book of Revelation, which is the final book in the library of scripture, in the second to last chapter, we get a picture of our permanent eternal state. And it says this, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away And there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he shall dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And it's in this passage that if you look at it, we're seeing a restoration, a recapitulation of the garden of Eden. That man, is with God and God is with man. There is no more mourning, there's no more sin, there's no more brokenness and we experience it forever. Last ingredient of our Christian hope today is this, is that in due time, we will live with God in a new perfect world forever. That this is what we were made for to know God, to love him, to enjoy him forever in a literal world that is better than we could imagine. So I started off uh, this message this morning um, talking about hope. And does our hope have any substance? Because the reality is, is that not all of our hopes end up like a movie. That sometimes the cancer diagnosis ends in death. Or for my family, it was the same thing. That it'll be five years this June that dad died. Not a fairy tale ending. Not the way we would have written it out. And you know, you think about all the things that you miss and the things that, that hurt, and you know, I just think about the the grandbabies born and the the weddings missed and the rehearsal dinners and but for me it, it's kind of like become one of the it's some of the smaller things that I miss. And you know, my dad had lost a lot of weight, and I miss shaking his bony hand, as weird as that sounds. I, I miss getting to, to hug that, that hug, the way that that felt. Friends, in the new heavens and the new earth, I will shake my dad's healthy hand. I will hug his healthy body. We will not be floating souls in an everlasting worship service. Sorry, Seth, I think you're great. Like, <laughs> Like we're not going to be stuck singing songs repeatedly over and over and over again. No, 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 no. Physical resurrection. You're going to have bodies. You're going to have a job that you love. You're going to have relationships. You're going to have passions. That it's not just this spiritual thing. Heaven, the new heavens and the new earth are more human than we've ever realized. why? Christ rose from the dead of whom is the first fruits and that if I'm united to him I experience that too. Spirituality, life with Jesus is not just this ethereal spiritual thing, it is everything, it is all things. I do a lot of work with, with uh, students and we talk about a priority list, right? And they like to write out their priority list and they put, you know, God at the top, family, friends. God has no interest being on your priority list. God is the paper by which you write your list. He is the framework. He is all in all, like verse 28 says. He, he wants to be smack dab in the middle of your family. He's smack dab in the middle of your career, smack dab in the middle of your life. And hello, he's gonna be smack dab in the middle of your eternity, he is all in all. We have a bright, ultimate hope, a new heaven and a new earth that's physical, that's literal, that Christ purchased. But right now, we live in this world that's busted and broken and frustrating. And so as we stand in the middle in this tension my challenge for us is like that great hymn said as we gaze upon what is to come as we gaze upon our first root our prototokos Jesus we have strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow let's pray together Father thank you that our hope is not a placebo, but it's real. It's bodily. It's got skin. Father, no doubt there are people's hearts right now who are longing for that day as mine does. Would you give us strength for today, Lord? Would you give us strength to, to work through this world of brokenness as we long for our awaited future? We love you, Lord. We pray this, Father, through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.